You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to dote upon. Hello, and welcome to episode 164 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Kim Feldman and Christina Bieber-Lake. Hi, Kim and Christina. Hello. Hello. Before we get started, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Kim, why don't you go first? Sure. My name is Kim Feldman, and I used to teach high school English for about 10 years, and now I teach future teachers Um by working with them while they're out doing their student teaching at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. My husband recently transitioned from being a pastor to working, I'm at a seminary and also teaching English to Afghan refugees, which I think is really fascinating work that I'm really excited for him to be doing now. And I have two awesome kids that I am a pretty much a full-time personal assistant doing their paperwork and arranging their schedule and driving them to all their things. <laughs> I'm sure it keeps you plenty busy. Um, mine don't have all the things yet, but I know that time is coming. So, uh, Christina, how about you? Sure. Um, Christina Bieber Lake. I teach English at Wheaton College, have done it for 22 years, although this year I'm on a research fellowship with the Henry Center for Theological Understanding at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So, I'm not currently teaching and I'm loving it. Uh, but, uh, I'm happy to be on this show because this is really a great novel. Thank you, Christina. And uh, my name is Alexis Neal. I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the Christian Humanist Radio Network's political podcast. Um, I am a lawyer by training, uh, although I have done and I have done some adjunct work um, in the field of law. But currently I spend my time with my two small boys um, homeschooling and taking care of them. And then in addition to that, I am also an elected official for our local community. So I get to figure out, uh, help figure out how to do, you know, all kinds of stuff with various funds that are coming in and wrestle with all kinds of interesting questions related to pandemic drama and everything like that. So that keeps me pretty busy as well. All right. Well, um, as Christina alluded to, today we're here to talk about a novel, um, not just any novel, a fantastic novel. Specifically, we're here to talk about Daphne du Maurier's gothic novel, Rebecca. Uh, the novel was published in 1938 and was an immediate hit, sold out the first edition in less than a month and won the National Book Award for Fiction in the United States that year. Uh, it's been continuously in print since its initial publication. Um, it was famously and brilliantly adapted for the silver screen in 1940, netting 11 Academy Award nominations, including one for the director, Alfred Hitchcock, um, and all the principal cast members, uh, Joan Fontaine, Laurence Olivier, and Judith Anderson, and ultimately winning Best Picture. Uh, Judith Anderson's portrayal of Mrs. Danvers earned her a spot on the American Film Institute's list of the top 100 heroes and villains. She's listed as number 31 on the villains list. Um, and Rebecca has also since been adapted for television um, in 1979 and 1997 uh, for the BBC, and then also more recently by Netflix in 2020. So that's just a little bit of background information on the novel. Before I go into a summary of the plot, I do want to give our panelists a chance to chime in with their experiences with Rebecca, uh, the novel and or any adaptations they have been exposed to. Uh, Christina, why don't you start us off? What is your experience with Rebecca? Yes, well, I'm really glad to start out because I wanted to say at the outset that if anybody who is listening to this has neither seen nor read uh, the novel, I, I just want to tell you to just turn us off and go and read the novel first before seeing the films, uh, because the novel is so good. And if you see the films, 
first, you know, you'll never be able to see the novel the way that it was originally meant to be read. So I just wanted to say that at the outset, because I actually had the, the fortunate experience of maybe it was 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago that I saw the Hitchcock film. And I didn't know at that time that this novel existed. And I remember thinking, wow, this is really creepy and really good. I'm just going to try to, you know, I'm just going to forget about it. And I just, I'm not, you can't try to forget. So I just remember, just I'll just forget about it. And then like 30 years later, I realized I hadn't remembered the plot at all. And I was like, oh, I want to read this novel. And so I got to read it without remembering what happened, um, having seen the Hitchcock film. And so I, I was delighted by how good of a novel it was. And this was really within the last couple of years that I had not read it prior to that. So it was a really great experience for me. And then I um, just last week saw the Netflix uh, adaptation for the first time. So that's my experience. Wonderful. Um Mine is kind of the opposite of yours. I can't honestly don't remember when I first read it, and I don't know um, which I if I read it or saw the 1940 version first. Um, I've just I've seen the the 1940 version multiple times, and I've read it probably half a dozen times. And I love rereading this book. I love knowing exactly the mess that everyone is in, and just how stuck they all are yes there's a certain <laughs> and, pleasure there too and, and just seeing and being like i'm being like oh, i know this person is wrong about this but i totally understand why they think what they think and um and just being sucked into it every single time um i just it's one of the one of the books i, I love to reread so um and i did watch the the netflix version um just in the last week or so and then i also watched the 1997 bbc and i watched a little bit of the 79 um uh, version as well, but I haven't finished that one, so I haven't, I can't super comment on that. But, but yeah, the 1940 and the and the book are the ones that I remember the most, um, kind of for as long as I can remember. But Kim, what about you? So the first time I read it was about 20 years ago when my college roommate she kind of got me into all of the like kind of classic chiclet Jane Austen, and and so like in my head I conflated Rebecca with Jane Austen type books. And I think like, and then I forgot about it, like just <laughs> like Christina, like I, um, you know, when I, I had just decided that I was going to reread it this year when you guys had the idea of doing an episode on it. And so I was like, oh yeah, I was planning to reread that anyways. And I had like one image of a kind of like creepy cove in my head. Like I knew that was going to happen, but other than that, I think I thought of it being kind of like maybe Northanger Abbey, like not a true, like I really remembered it as a romance and not, and like maybe a pseudo gothic, but like I, it was totally fresh when I read it this time. And this time too, I brought different lenses that I know I did not apply mm. the first time yeah. um, as far as um, just the, from, you know, a, like feminist lenses and um, her experience as a young bride. And um, I don't think I understood any of that the first time I read it. So you know, I just want really to, that's, that's so it. great. I just want to point out that all of our experiences are really interesting because as a literature professor, this book, it, it's, it excels at the different pleasures that it offers because it's not just the pleasures of a really well-told tale, but of being able to revisit it with the knowledge that you already have of what happens, uh, all the different adaptations and the different things that it offers. I mean, it's just amazing what this book can do. It, I do. I really, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I have loved this book, and I was very much hoping that people who actually work in the English literature field, <laughs> so yes. you, Christina, and you, Kim, would would bear out my own personal just taste as a as a, a pleasure reader, being like, this book is so great, um, and override my husband who was like, this book is boring and terrible. So um, <laughs> boring, boring. <laughs> um, to be fair, he doesn't. This is not his his particular jam. And I think you make a really good point, Kim. This book does feel a lot older. Uh, it gets compared a lot to Jane Eyre, which I'll talk about in a minute. And I feel like they do. They feel so close. Um, mm -hmm. And and that in my mind, it's always a challenge to be like, nope, this is mid twentieth century, like early twentieth century, that this is being written uh, because it does have that feel. I could understand lumping it with those other works because I just there's so much in it, so much connective tissue to the past. You know, well, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to um to say before we got really deep in the conversation. First of all, your husband, what the heck? 
boring is not it. But one of the things that's so interesting to me about this book, especially because you have to understand that I read it after I had been teaching literature for 20 years for the first time. And it was like, books are made of other books. This is Cormac McCarthy's you know, famous phrase. And oh my gosh, there's Gothic in this. There's Jane Eyre. There's Wuthering Heights. There's uh, Poe. There's not a, a small amount of Madame Bovary. There's Henry James and Edith Wharton, right? The, the interior lives of the very wealthy and the differences in their classes. There's even D.H. Lawrence with the power differentials, right? Uh, in gendered relationships. And then I was like, when I watched the Netflix version, I was like, oh, there's a lot of Iago in uh, Mrs. Danvers. So, I mean, this is this wow. is really a lot going on. Right. I love that. That's, yeah, thanks for bringing that, all those influences to bear. Um, well, as Christina said, if you haven't read the book, and uh, we would recommend that you stop, come back after you've read it. Um, it really is uh, worth going and reading. But for those who are willing to soldier on, I'm going to try to briefly summarize the plot. Uh, spoiler warning for a, uh, you know, almost 100-year-old book. Um, so uh, the novel's famous opening line, Last Night I Dreamt I Went to Manderley Again, is actually part of an opening epilogue in which the narrator reflects on her time at Manderley, this fictional estate. Uh, the narrator and her husband, during the epilogue, are now living in self-imposed in self exile and clearly are coping with the aftermath of some kind of trauma. We then flash back to the start of the story proper. Our narrator, who is never named, is a young woman training as a paid companion, staying in Monte Carlo with her employer, an obnoxious American woman. While there, she encounters Maxim de Winter, a wealthy widower, the owner of Manderley, a country estate in Cornwall, famous for its beauty. During their stay in Monte Carlo, the narrator spends a lot of time with and ultimately falls in love with Maxim, though she's convinced it's unrequited. When her employer suddenly decides to decamp to America, Maxim rather brusquely offers the narrator a much more attractive alternative, marry him and move to Manderley. She accepts, they wed quickly and without pomp or ceremony, and after their honeymoon, Maxim returns to Manderley with his new bride. Our narrator at this point is largely ignorant of Maxim's life before they met, including his first wife, the titular Rebecca, and the circumstances of Rebecca's death. She only knows that Rebecca drowned in the bay near Manderley. However, through comments made by Maxim's family and friends and others in the community, she learns that Rebecca was breathtakingly beautiful, clever, amusing, charismatic, and confident. The narrator, by contrast, sees herself as young, inexperienced, clumsy, awkward, ordinary, and shy. In other words, utterly inadequate in comparison to Rebecca. She struggles to adapt to her new role as mistress of Manderley and the obligations that that role brings with it. And even more troubling, she cannot escape constant reminders of Rebecca, who fulfilled that role so effortlessly. The narrator becomes convinced that Maxim is still in love with his dead wife. She's helped to this conclusion by creepy housekeeper Mrs. Danvers, who served as Rebecca's maid and was devoted to and possibly obsessed with Rebecca. Mrs. Danvers undermines the narrator and occasionally even sabotages her relationship with Maxim. These efforts culminate in two climactic moments, Mrs. Danvers convincing the narrator to attend the annual costume ball in the same costume Rebecca wore to a previous ball, and later trying to persuade the narrator to commit suicide. A sudden shipwreck in the bay leads to the discovery of Rebecca's boat, and it quickly becomes clear that the boat did not sink accidentally, but was deliberately scuttled. Maxim finally breaks down and confesses to the narrator that he killed Rebecca. He hated her. They were never happy. She was continually unfaithful and generally terrible. And when she threatened to install her illegitimate son as the heir of Manderley, implying at the time that she was pregnant, he snapped and killed her. The narrator, emboldened by the revelation that Maxim did not love Rebecca, resolves to stand by him as they await the investigation. That investigation eventually leads to a tense inquest, attempted blackmail, and a visit to a London doctor who informs them that Rebecca was not pregnant. She had terminal cancer. This is ultimately deemed a sufficient motive for suicide. Uh, indeed, Maxim is convinced that Rebecca's actions the night she died were intended to provoke him, essentially committing suicide by his hand. The matter is officially closed. The couple returns home to find Manderley in flames, presumably by Mrs. Danvers' hand. So, as I mentioned before, this is often compared to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, which we have a, a whole other episode about. And you can see that comparison is with good reason. Um, we have a young woman with no family meeting and falling in love with a wealthy older man possessed of a fine country estate, uh, albeit one that harbors secrets. 
the older man's earlier marriage to an apparently ideal but ultimately wild and unsatisfactory bride ends in tragedy, and you have a malevolent and unhinged denizen of the house causing a ruinous fire. So lots of comparison points there to Jane Eyre. So that's my attempt to summarize our plot. Uh, we're going to dive now into the reading portion of our discussion. Uh, my first question for you ladies is, is there a central theme to this book? And if so, what is it? Let's just start with the hard stuff. That's the sort of question that when you ask the students, they're like, they open their mouths, they're like, what? <laughs> but luckily, we're not students, right? right. So, yeah, uh, usually I build up to that. <laughs> but we can just jump and go right for it. Um, I'll just uh, to start out and say that I, I feel that there are so many different themes, right? So to say there's one theme would be a would be a, a sort of a injustice to the to the book. But I feel like from my perspective, it's really about the the imagination of the of the narrator and and how she sort of builds things up and, and reads things a certain way because she can't help it. She can't help but try to fill in all the blanks. So it might be about the fact that we as human beings fill in those blanks according to our insecurities and our greatest needs. Um, her insecurity is how could how could Maxim possibly love me? So she's just, you know, filling in all of this information. And, and this is the reason one of the main reasons, in my opinion, why you must read the book rather than just seeing the films, because there's literally no way that a filmmaker can tell the difference between what we're seeing and the and what the narrator is seeing and interpreting right that requires a novel of the of the level that henry james's novels are for instance and that's why i think there's a lot of similarity there so if i had to take a vote that would be my vote but i'm really aware that there are lots of other things so kim what did what did you think i mean even as you were talking both of you were talking i kept changing my mind on like, yes what, yeah. I, what i would focus on um because like there's definitely that theme of jealousy because you know miss danvers is is jealous of this new person taking rebecca's place um maxim was definitely jealous of his first wife's you know affairs and um or at least I don't know if he was jealous, but he was definitely, that was definitely a piece of it, I think. Um, and then, of course, the narrator is, you know, so jealous of Rebecca. And um, so I, I definitely think that's there. Um, and there is also this weird underlying theme, I think, of class. Um, yeah, it's not weird. It's very strong. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely think that's there. And, you know, she, to, the character has basically imposter syndrome, you know, where she is terrified of, um, you know, she just doesn't feel she's she's not owning her role mm -hmm. at Manderley. And, you know, she's hiding behind doors and she's um, running away and she's, you know, hiding things in drawers, you know, because mm -hmm. she just, it just feels so out of place in this environment. Um, and, then and then Mrs. Danvers is like slapping her down with a look all the time, you know, right? like you can't handle this job, you know, yeah. and, you know. And like, I don't know, you know, if the author was really thinking, I mean, clearly not in the terms that we do of patriarchy and intersectionality, because those terms probably weren't in use in the same way at that time. But um, just the the narrator, like I get so creeped out by the proposal. Um, oh, yeah. Oh. Both when it happened and then just now when Alexis was reading, you know, because yeah. it's like this poor girl who she she's at the mercy of her you know, the woman, she, the, her employer at the, you know, when the employer decides to leave and she, you know, she goes to Maxim and he's like, well, you can either go with your employer or come back to Manderley with me. And I'm like, Ooh, is that, is that a marriage? Like yeah, if it's yeah. just because she has nowhere else to go and has no money, like yeah. that, that really, um, and then, you know, just that whole thing of being treated like a child. So, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know where to sit. <laughs> there's just so theme. much even just in what you said right there's so much just in that like the um the being treated and then like the inner a child world that you talked about too like her her inner world of imagination she's just constantly creating 
or feeling the need to like Fill create in the a gaps. narrative mm-hmm. yeah, for you know, what she doesn't understand. And I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about this, because to my mind, this is totally irrelevant question that I think she's actually extremely intelligent. And the reason that we are supposed to think this from the beginning is the way that remember, she totally reads um, the fact that uh, Maxim is slapping down her employer for, uh-huh. you know, I mean, just completely reads it. And and she knows that he knows, you know, it's this incredibly smart moment. Um so she's naive and young, but she's not stupid. And there's a big difference between those things, right? So whatever we want to say about her imagination, it's not because she's fanciful, right? It's because she's yeah. filling in gaps using her intelligence the best that she's able to do with the with the data that's that's available to her. I thought that the Netflix adaptation tripped over the line and made her look kind of clumsy and um stupid at times and i don't think that uh de maurier wants us to think that what do you guys think about that no i think i think you've got a good point there she is intuitive very intuitive of sort of reading reading the situation but because she has such incomplete information um that's going to necessarily skew the output right she has such incomplete data that even even running it through an intelligent mind you know, mm-hmm. she and, and you can as you read it, you can feel that where you can feel, especially having reread, like rereading it, you know, this is why this moment feels this way to you. You're right that something weird is going on here. You just don't know what the weird thing is because you don't have all the information. So you mm-hmm. think that Frank Crawley, the manager, doesn't want to talk about this because he, he everyone loved Rebecca so much. You don't mm-hmm. know that the reason he doesn't want to talk about this is because. Rebecca was terrible and tried to seduce him. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, and like, there's all of this stuff and you just, she doesn't know why. And she's picking honestly the most logical response. Yes. Correct. It's not logical to think that you're the previous wife was a psychopath. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. That's not logical. That's right. And, like it's yeah. much more logical that he loved his beautiful wife that everyone correct. raves about. Yeah, everybody raves um, about. So her, her intelligence, yeah, I think she's, she's kicking out the whole, the logical response. She's just missing key pieces of information because people will not tell her anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and her inexperience, and you know, th- to me, this was an insensitivity on Maxim's part. Oh, totally. Of not realizing how nervous <laughs> she was to meet the staff and to, you know, and to engage. Like she was completely unprepared for that world, and she knew it. She said, yeah. "I what adult he people is. People don't marry people like me." Yeah, yeah, like, you know, she knew that she was not prepared to enter into that world of society, and that, and so, and and her inexperience was real like it, like mm-hmm. I think you're right she wasn't stupid she was just had, didn't have the experience in that environment and I think I read Northender every very recently and you know the the main character in that book jumps to conclusions as well about the house that she's staying in and about its owner that were incorrect but mm-hmm. um and so I kept in my mind thinking she was totally crazy but you're right she wasn't crazy like there was something really off about the whole situation <laughs> about Mrs. Danvers. Like she had a reason to be scared. Mm-hmm. And if you do. No, I think you're. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, you do well, Kim, to point out the imposter syndrome part of it, because this is what makes it so interesting from a feminist perspective to read this novel, right? Because it's like she, because she's, there's a class issue, but also as, as a woman, she just feels like, well, I don't know. I, I, I it must be me. Right. I, I must somehow be the one that's off here, like the whole gaslighting kind of idea, right? That that it's got to be Absolutely. something, right? And so the, the fact that most women, especially when they're in a clear power differentiation, differential, will default to that. Like it can't possibly yeah. be that this person is evil and that, you know, uh, that wouldn't even occur to her. And so I feel like yeah, that, that's one of the that smart things. so strange about, this novel especially because in my mind I had categorized it as a romance and so you know I came to it and I was like oh no that there's something really not healthy about this relationship and and I I don't know that it got better no I totally agree (laughs) and and you know what let's let's talk about that question because when I saw the Netflix have you seen the Netflix adaptation no I haven't I didn't I have I've only seen the 1940s version. At the very end, when she sort of gets Maxim and then looks right at the camera. Did you catch that, uh, Alexis? At the very, very end, 
when she has Maxim okay. back, she looks the actress looks right at the camera in this way, this look that I do not know exactly how to interpret. But, uh, you know, I'm just wondering, but looks at the camera sort of like, almost like a femme fatale, almost like a somebody who knows who's, who's, who's f- clearly fallen from innocence to experience um, something. But right. yeah, I, I think we should talk about whether we are meant to think of this relationship as a good thing or that he has somehow really kind of messed her up, you know, because it's such a bad relationship. I would love to know what you guys think about that. You think that's off? Um, I think I think a lot of that depends on what we as readers bring to the text, mm. um, because I think I think a lot of it depends on how charitable of an interpretation we want to give Maximus behavior. Um, yeah. So you know, and and I don't know what Demorier intended exactly there, but you know, you have the. Maxim as sort of a corrupting influence. Um, and he, he says, you know, um, that, that she, she loses the, the funny young lost look that she had, that he was so attracted to at the beginning. Um, and it's not immediately clear whether that's the kind of look you would lose just by growing older and experiencing the world, um, or just finding out that the world is, is broken and fallen. Um, that is, she, she loses it when he tells her about what happened to Rebecca, or if she has been corrupted in some way by by him. That's never really been my reading. It's I've tended to read him sort of the way I read Rochester, which is like, hey, he's not my cup of tea, but she clearly is into him, and <laughs> I don't know that she'd be happy with anybody else. Like, clearly just super, super devoted to this guy, to the point of idolatry, really. Like, she is, like, he is the sun around which she orbits. Mm. Um, but, um, but, yeah, so I don't know that I had thought of him explicitly as being... Um, that sort of corrupting influence. Kim, did you have thoughts about that? I, I think you're right that uh, it does depend on how charitably you interpret Maxim and his actions because she their, their relationship does seem to get better um, once the uh, dishonesty is removed and once they're able to communicate more openly. Um, but I, I do just feel like he is using her in a lot of ways um, just to kind of make himself feel better. Mm-hmm. And he's keeping her, you know, he he likes her because she's childlike. Um, and I, I don't know. I want to be happy for them in the end. But then I'm also disturbed by wanting to be happy for them in the end. Yes, that's exactly the way I feel. And I can't imagine. Well, and it's not entirely clear that they're. It's not entirely clear that, they, that they're happy in the end, yes. right? How how also much of a happy they get? Yeah. 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 How can you be when you have to sit on this huge secret, right? Um, to me, that's part of it. I mean, that's obviously the gothic element of it as well, right? Like you, you just, oof, right? Um. Well, I think um, I'm gonna try. There's so much here, and I feel like I feel like it's really easy to sort of shotgun out into all of the all of the different angles uh, um, that we can explore here. I did want to mention briefly, since we're talking sort of more broadly about themes, uh, to well, a couple quick comments. One, I really appreciated your point about the contrast essentially between um, the narrator and her imagination of what everyone else is doing and what everyone else is feeling and Maxim's complete inability to ever enter into the feelings of his wife. Yeah. Um, You said like that contrast is so stark between her always thinking about what is Maxim feeling? What's going to bother him? Is someone going to make a comment? Is someone going to say something? Uh, Is something going to remind him? How can I like structure this whole day so that he has no discomfort and he's like, by the way, my sister's coming to lunch or, uh, you know, by the way, you need to deal with all of the, you know, uh, squabbles between staff that you've never met. And also you've never dealt with staff mm-hmm. um, like he's just is not thinking about what the experience is like for her. And she is always and only thinking about what the experience is like for mm-hmm. him. Not mm-hmm. only him, she's also thinking about what does Frank feel or what does Beatrice feel other people. So um, the contrast is really strike uh, stark there, I think. Um, but anyway. Um, the other, the other theme I did want to mention, just because it's one that I love reading about, um, is the idea of personality and inevitability that when you have these two characters at the start of the story, 
Maxim is only ever going to pick the precise sort of person who is going to be least able to cope with Manderley. Uh, the person who is going to be least able to deal with Mrs. Danvers, least likely to confront him and demand answers or clarity. Anyone who would do any of those things is going to be re- remind him too much of Rebecca. Um, is going to be too mm-hmm. assertive, too confident, all of those things. He himself, again, the more, if you're reading him more charitably, which you don't have to, but if you are, is trapped by a fear of being found out. He says later, I think in the book, he says he's not tra- trapped by guilt. He doesn't feel bad. Um, he, he, about what happened to Rebecca. He's worried about someone finding out. Um, and specifically the fear that the narrator would not love him if she knew the truth and fearing that he would be suspected. So as a result, he can't take a stand against Mrs. Danvers for fear that she'll harm him in some way. And he can't undermine the public perception of his happy marriage because it protects him from suspicion. And if he gets rid of the traces of Rebecca, that might create the impression he's not as bereaved as he ought to be. Um, so he needs his new wife to be the one who does all that because she can do it without causing a stir or suggesting that all is not, was not well between Maxim and Rebecca. Mm. But he chooses exactly the sort of person who would never, ever take a stand and erase Rebecca and forge a new way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because he's hiding his fear and his guilt, uh, that keeps him distant from the narrator so he can't give her the reassurance that she desperately craves if he even notices that she craves it. Um, and she can't reassure him of her love because she doesn't know that he's afraid of that. Only when circumstances force him to come clean does he discover her mistaken fears and give her the chance to correct his mistaken fears. They're just in a mess. And like that there's always going to be in that mess because of who they are. The only way out for them is to be different people than they are. Um, Like that's the only way is for her to not be herself or for him to not be himself. And I just think that 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 trap, that loop, that um, that hamster wheel of them being themselves is just fascinating to reread and just see them stuck there. Um, so I think that's, um, that's a theme that I just think is really interesting watching, watching mm-hmm. them go through that. Yeah. And another, and a related theme to that will be, and I think this is the, this time reading it, the second time that I read it became more clear, the whole idea of, of the appearances of things, right? Like the facade that's put up the, the need yes. for that is so prominent in this book. And it's what really keeps them from hearing what's really going on, right? So it's not just their personalities and what they need, but but this uh, this whole keeping up the appearances thing, um, which is pretty clearly signaled as one of the themes when we just have the way that uh, Mrs. What's-Her-Name at the beginning, the, the awful American lives. She Mrs. Just, Van Hopper. Yeah, Van Hopper. She just lives by that. Like, it's just all a, an act, a charade. And, and so, so everybody looks down on her, but they do the same thing. They she do does. the same thing that she does, okay. just on a higher level and a smarter level, you know. Um, well, oh, sorry, go ahead, Kim. Well, I was just going to say, and it, I think all of that is also related to the theme of that, that or that idea of insecurity and self-consciousness, yes. too. You know, that, um, you know, Maxim, he is he doesn't want his name ruined. You know, like this is why he keeps yes. up the facade of his marriage to Rebecca and um you know yep. and that he's he's you know he's trying to protect his image he's doing image management and um then the narrator is also I mean her level of insecurity and self-consciousness and she captures that so well she um, really does oh my goodness yeah uh just you know just I I don't know because I I've I don't struggle with it as much as some um but I've had those moments and she just, I just really felt it was so authentic um, the way she captured that and um, the contrast with Rebecca's confidence. Um, Yeah. So just that insecurity and Mm self-consciousness is definitely in there as well and and connected to what you were both talking about. And a vote for, um, for that as the main theme might just come from the, the title itself of the novel, right? The fact of, Rebecca being the title character, we never know the first name of the narrator, right? Like all those things are votes in favor of that interpretation of the, that, that being the main theme, the sort of like um, how somebody can be kind of squeezed out by this larger than life person who ends up being not at all what everybody thinks she was, right? Um, really a ghost, um, a very powerful right. figure. And that she, the narrator, can only come into her own after she realizes that this this uh, ghost has been completely, like, has no power. All this power that she'd given this 
thing really odd to do with how much Maxim supposedly loved her, right? Well, no, he doesn't love her. He doesn't. That's like she's constantly right. reminding us, oh, he doesn't actually love her. Now I'm in control. And then she starts ordering the house uh, workers around and stuff. You know, it's like she just gets set free from this. Yeah. Well, I want to ask about that because so we see her her confidence shift over the course of the book. Um, and I'm curious. So given sort of my my perspective, right, that he that the part of what attracts him to the narrator attracts Maxim to the narrator is how she is the not Rebecca. Right. She is the mm-hmm. the anti Rebecca. Um, but by the end of the book, she has gained she gains confidence. Right. She's confident, more confident in Maxim's love for her um, and no longer feels it eclipsed by Rebecca in his eyes. So does now, is she becoming more like Rebecca or is there something different about her confidence? Um, is she going to be less appealing to Maxim as she gains confidence or that's does it a, look different? And so it doesn't affect it. That's a really excellent question because when we were talking earlier about the whole child, like, you know, you're kind of a, and, and also a dog. Do you remember in that section where she's just like, he yes, treats me like the dogs. Yeah, yeah. This is how I treat Jasper. Yeah, yeah this is how I treat Jasper. It's so heartbreaking. Oh, chilling. Yeah. And I kept thinking of Ibsen's dollhouse, you know, all the language about little squirrel, my little mm. pet. And and that's, you know, a, a play that is clearly about how the stronger the woman is, the less the man can deal with it. Right. Um, so that does not bode well for the stronger that she gets that their relationship is going to start looking more like Rebecca's in Maxim's relationship. Right. Which is again, why that look at the end of the Netflix that she, that looks that she gives the camera, right at the camera at the end, you got to go back and watch it is so creepy to me. Like, what does that mean? That, that she's becoming more like Rebecca and that this is really not going to be, you know, anything that Maxim can handle. What does that mean? You know? I do wonder if there, if there is a difference though, in the confidence, I was thinking about that because she's confident She's confident in Maxim's love. Like, that's the confidence yes. that she has. Yeah. And the confidence that Rebecca has is in Rebecca. Yeah, that's like, true. Re- from, what, from what we see, Rebecca is like, I'm Rebecca. I'm awesome. I do what I want. Um, and she's been raised to sort of only do what she wants. Um, and I, I wondered if there is, and not, not to want to over-spiritualize things, but if there's a spiritual corollary there, the idea of when we have confidence in in Christ, in our faith, in our love, in how much He loves us, in how we are kept in Him, our salvation, all of that, then we have confidence to care for others. Yeah, you know, I, I thought of that too when I was reading the book. I did think of that. I was like, wow, you know, this this being loved really does set her free. It does. It absolutely does. And she's able, like, her confidence is not to domineer or to victimize or to to do any of the things that Rebecca does with her confidence. She's confident to, like, she's like, I'm going to protect Maxim. Like, I am, like, I will stand in the gap against whatever comes. I'm going to protect him. I'm going to look after this household. There's no, there's no intimation that she has lost her focus on other people and caring for them. Confidence just enables her to do that. Um, So it does feel different. And it's the truth that sets her free, you know, like Mm -hmm. because she really changes in the course of almost 24 hours. Yes. And it's like she faces her deepest, darkest cave, you know, like standing at the window contemplating suicide. And then and that that's when you start to see her shift, you know, where she's like, I've faced the darkness and now and, you know, and I walked away from it, you know, and then and then she learns the truth Mm -hmm. and. And that's really where she kind of comes into her own. Mm-hmm. This is why it's so, I don't know how many Henry James novels you all have read or Edith Wharton, but these are the sorts of discoveries that those characters are always making, right? Like within 24 hours, it's like the, the scales fall away from their eyes and they're like, oh, this is not what I thought. And usually in the case with Henry James and Edith Wharton, it's like for worse, right? Not for better. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, you know, so for what it's worth. And and I think, too, that the the revelation that she has and, and I, I, I can't remember where I saw this, but the one of the comparisons that they also talk about with with Jane Eyre is you have initially uh, the, the man in this position of authority and prestige and this this you know lowly female character. And then there's some kind of event that happens so that they can engage as peers. So in, mm. in, in Jane Eyre. Uh, yeah. Rochester is blinded, blinded and she inherits money. And so now she like has money. She's no longer 
um, the, the, the poor maiden who's being rescued, she can come as a peer, care for him, um, and be on equal footing. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, Maxim's confession, I think, does that. For, oh, it totally does. For the narrator. Yeah. Because now she knows, first of all, that he is worried about losing her. So that's an equalizer. Yes. Um, and he has fallen. And then Rebecca also is sort of deposed from her made up pedestal. And so now all of a sudden she feels like she can be instead of um, being the child. Right. That she's she's felt like this child um, that she can feel like a peer and a woman. And there is a maturity. And so I think that's why I wonder what that when he talks about the funny lost look, if some of that is. If that is independent of or if that is sort of combined with this maturity that she has as she's like, now I am a woman and this is my husband and I can love him as a peer Mm -hmm. instead of just as this, you know, the the, the in between maid um, um, as she is compared to at one point in the novel. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I think there's there's a lot there. Yeah, there is a lot there because you're so right to say the main parallel is with Jane Eyre. And so then, since that's the main parallel, the interesting question becomes, what's the same and then what's different, right? Um, Because there's so many similarities and then, and yet there's, there's so much more doubt about like, about Maxim than there is about Rochester. I mean, in the narrative, right? Right. Uh, Itself that, and because it's written in 1935 and not uh, you know, 18, whatever, you know, yeah, so there's definitely a moral ambiguity. Yes. That you're just like, cause you want them to win, but then you're like, you're oh, like but oh. I don't know. Yeah. He, I mean, this is domestic violence. Here, yeah, this you is know? Domestic like, violence. <laughs> like I, I, I shouldn't be wanting them to keep this a secret. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, and I think that, that, you know, Demore knows that. I, I mean, I think she's just like, it's like bringing the gothic novel or that sort of romantic novel of the Jane Eyre sort into the, the you know, the 20th century, right? In such an interesting way. Um, but without taking away the pleasure of wanting to cheer for them, right? There's there's not that right. much ambiguity, right? You still have the pleasure of, of, of the victory that Rebecca has not won, right? That, that we've won. And... And it's inevitable for us to cheer for them. But you're right, Kim. I don't think we're meant to be just like unambiguously cheering for them. I mean, arguably, that's what corrupts, if anything, corrupts the narrator or reveals her corruption, depending on how you want to look at it. Mm. It's not, you know, Maxim telling her that he killed Rebecca. It's that she's like 100 percent willing to be complicit in covering this up. Yeah, let's go, baby. She will not have Rebecca. Yeah, let's we do. She will not let Rebecca win. Yeah. And so she is. And that's a, that's, I think, one of the big contrasts. Right. Because Jane Eyre, like Jane is such an example of moral rectitude. Like totally. she is like, this is the right thing. And that is what I am doing. And I don't care. Like it breaks my heart. It may kill me, but I will not bend when I know what the right thing is. Exactly. To do. Um, and that's not part of the narrator here. She's compassionate and she cares about people. But she doesn't have that that driving, you know, force with it within her that that Jane has, uh, which is why, you know, I feel like if Rochester murdered someone. Right. <laughs> I don't feel like Jane, yes. Jane would have necessarily responded the same way that the narrator does in Rebecca. Right. Right. Although it um, is pretty awful to have, you know, your your uh, ex up in the attic. Right. But but yeah, it's not as awful yes. as murdering somebody. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um. Well, and that that is actually a good, I think, transition to the question of Rebecca. Um, one of the questions that I've seen some people arguing for, especially trying to to look with a more feminist lens at this book, is whether Rebecca is a villain or is she just a victim of the times and the patriarchy and things like that. Um, specifically thinking about who tells us about Rebecca and how reliable are they. So do you have thoughts on whether Rebecca is a villain or a victim? I go with villain all the way. <laughs> Maybe I... Yeah, she, yeah, she definitely comes across as villain. Um, but you, I mean, I definitely also see the whole, you know, we're told this by Maxim, who's been cuckold by her, you know, like, yes. you know, and so, and, you know, she, is she a victim of just her time? Like that, you know, she had this, you know, sexual ethic that, did not fit in that time period. And um, she was trying to figure out how to navigate that. Um, 
but she did it in a way that had no regard for Maxim or even for her lovers, you know? So I, I don't know. I, I mean, I saw her as a villain, but I can definitely see. And I, and, and even, but then there's that piece too, that even if she is having an affair, does that mean that she deserved to die? Oh yeah, no, definitely not. But, but she really, this was suicide by jilted lover. Uh, you know, I, you right, know, right. I, the suicide by cop, this is suicide by Maxim, like, uh, yep. which, which is also really horrible. Right. When you think about it, like, right. let, let me um, right, tell right, him, to put him right? in that position. Yeah. Like this is a way to, this is a, another way that I can stick it to him yeah. yes. by making him have to carry around the weight of, exactly. of this act. And, and these and, are the undeniable yeah, facts of the novel, heavy. right? The, the yeah. facts are that she was not pregnant, but that she told him. Uh, I mean, I don't think that we have any reason to believe that Maxim is lying about that, right? Right. Um, oh, yeah. So that's a horrible thing to do. That's really. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, and I, I would agree. I mean, I the the thing when I when I read this piece, it was talking about how she was a victim of the patriarchy was, you can be a victim of the patriarchy and still be a terrible person. Okay, well, true. Oh, yeah. Yes. No, that's true. <laughs> there you go. So, because I was thinking about it as I was reading, and I was like, look, it's not just Maxim. We have people who, who even like Rebecca, who tell us things that are creepy and chilling. So, like, she's sexually promiscuous. Oh, also, by the way, with her own cousin. Yeah. Um, and then she, you know, even if she is sexually promiscuous, she makes vows at her wedding that she has no intention to keep. So like C.S. Lewis says, I can't teach you about being uh, being what is it being chased if you don't even care about keeping vows like that's right. a pretty basic. Don't make promises that you don't want to keep. Um, she treated people like playthings luring men in for the fun of it even according to mrs danvers like right she would right. just play with people right she, um, she doesn't love anybody yeah yeah uh, jack favell tells us so jack favell who was her cousin and her lover talks about how she was trying to uh to lure in frank the super super sweet okay. super super sweet manager like the one frank thing i was thinking great. as i was rereading this was if she doesn't marry maxim maybe she should marry Carly. Oh, frank, but yeah. um because he's wonderful. He but um, Mrs. Danvers relates an anecdote in which Rebecca subdues an ungovernable horse by essentially beating it into submission like it's covered in blood when she's yes. done. To Mrs. Danvers, this is just evidence of Rebecca's indomitable spirit, but also it's super scary and cruel. Um, and in a, a, a heartbreaking scene um, when the narrator is talking to Frank Crawley about Rebecca and Frank is like, yes, but there's also value in kindness and sincerity and modesty. And, and in a, just such a human touch, the, the narrator's like, yeah, but obviously Rebecca was all those things too. Like, how is that different about me? And doesn't realize that no, actually <laughs> Rebecca isn't those things. And then in one of the ones that I thought was the most telling is you have Ben, the keeper's son who lives on the property and has cognitive and other difficulties and is openly terrified of Rebecca constantly oh, yes. wanting to be reassured that she's not coming back. He says she had yes. eyes like a snake and threatened to put him in the asylum and then terrified him with tales of what would happen to him in the asylum okay. in order to scare him into being quiet. Okay. And I just feel like, yeah, yeah, she's like seriously. And then, yeah, her dying wish is not just to die and avoid the pain of cancer, yeah. but to do so in a way that will destroy Maxim as much as she possibly mm -hmm. can. Yeah. Right. So let's like, face it. So You've got yeah, Mrs. Yeah, we Danvers. Can, we may not be able to trust Maxim yeah. outright because he, you know, he's confessing to murder and like he is going to make her look as evil as possible. But yes. when Miss Danvers yes. and her lover and, you know, Ben and, and Ben, who's who is not going to lie necessarily, you know, like, yeah. So I think when these when you have all of these witnesses <laughs> collectively, you can weigh heavily on the side of villain. Yeah, I think so. Um I think you have a much better case for honestly to defend Bertha Mason and Jane Eyre mm -hmm. sort of in a wide sargasso sea kind of way than you do to, to rehabilitate Rebecca mm -hmm. uh, because Bertha Mason, the, the evil that she does seems to be directly attributed to like mental illness and mm -hmm. trauma that she's experienced. Whereas Rebecca seems to just be voluntarily choosing the way of maximum destruction mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah and and apparently this was just like revealed to maxim immediately after their marriage like what three days or yeah. something i can't yeah, it's, yeah. crazy but, but does it, her it, that, sorry go ahead oh i was gonna say does her evilness eradicate his 
culpability. Well, I think that's one of the questions the novel is asking us to, to ask. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think? I, not about it that it's asking you to ask, better. but do you think it? Yeah. It makes me feel better about cheering for them. Yeah. I mean, I don't feel great that he doesn't feel bad. Yeah. I think at one point in the novel, he says, I don't feel bad about what I did. Essentially, I only feel bad for what it's done to the narrator. Um, and um, that's not great. Even like. However understandable that moment of violence might be to say, hey, people, people do awful things in a moment of anger and violence like that happens um, doesn't make it excusable. But then if later you don't feel bad about it, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really an interesting question. Um, and it's, it is interesting because we know that that was her plan all along, like that, that was her intention. And so then there's this question of like, you know, she can't, she can't give someone permission to murder her, but like, that's essentially what she's trying to do is to make that happen essentially. Yeah. Giving permission, but he doesn't know that. So that's not a moral excuse for him, even if that is a moral excuse. Um, which I don't think it is. So it's it's a really thorny. I think it's a really thorny issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that thorny that the 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 narrator is so quick to unconcerned be with okay all with it. Doesn't matter. Team Maxim. Yeah, well, she's like, like he loves me. That's all I wanted to know. Here right. we go. And I guess you know her unconditional love for him is great, <laughs> but you know, yeah, also problematic. Well, with that in mind. Let me ask you, do we have thoughts about whether this is a novel with a happy ending? <laughs> That's what we're struggling over, isn't it? It's sort of like, well, I knew I was cheering for them, but that doesn't mean that that I should have been cheering for them. You know, um, I think it's almost by default, like because Rebecca and Favel were so awful. Yes. That- like by contrast, this other couple was you 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 know like if I'm gonna cheer for anybody here, this is who I'm gonna cheer for. Um, and but I also like I needed it to work out. Like I, you know, like while you know she's falling in love and it's but it's kind of a weird relationship. It's like I I wanted it to work out in the end. And like when she's so nervous, I wanted her to grow up and to be strong. And I wanted them. To, to have the the deceit drop between them so that they could actually know one another. And, um, you, you know, I wanted all these things to happen and they all did, but I also kind of knew the whole time that they weren't ever going to be able to go back to Manderley. And so that was interesting in the structure of the novel that you knew that they weren't going to go back. So, which is sad. Well, Kim, you know, you yeah. just real I realize you just read it the way that uh, she read Maxim and all that stuff to the whole novel, <laughs> the way she wanted to, the way she was afraid to, the way she, we're, we're, we're kind of trapped. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I, I feel like I need to reread the opening sections. And I didn't get when I, in my second reading all the way to the very end where, you know, where the sort of contemporary moment is, the present moment is for the narrator. I need to reread that. Because there is so much wistfulness in, you know, like it's, you know, it's not just nostalgia, but it's like, I don't know, I need to read that again. What did you, what did you think about that, Alexis? Because you've read it more than the two of us, it sounds like. More yeah, times. I still, I still don't know exactly how to feel because there is a definite way in which she is, is nostalgic for Manderley. And I, I do mm. wonder how long she was there because she's talking about all these things that she remembers. And of course in the movies, it's all very truncated. Um, but where she talks about all these different things, especially, especially the outdoor spaces at Manderley oh, and yeah. all these wonderful things that she remembers and how even in their, wherever they are in like Cairo or somewhere living somewhere hot and sunny, that she's like reading all of the nature stuff she can about um, about England and, yeah. and just just remembering that so fondly um, and the the pull that she has, but she kind of keeps a lot of that secret from Maxim if she thinks that it will remind him. So there's a way in which this is not just a bad memory for her if she's missing it and longing for it, um, even in her troubled time there, that there were parts of it that she really misses. Um, 
And then there's in their life, there is uh, such a quiet, mundane feel. And I can never decide if it's okay for them to be happy with quiet and simple. And she's fine with quiet and simple Mm -hmm. because she's not Rebecca. Mm -hmm. And it's just their happiness looks different and isn't fancy dress balls. Right. Um, Or if they're not really happy and they're still living under the weight of the past. Yeah. Or if, if they're just broken people who are working through that. And it just takes time, even if you're healthy, to process through it. And it's just always going to affect you in some way, those kinds of events, even if you're you know, healthy and happy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's complex. But there is definitely a, a, a fall from innocence to experience as a part of that, right? Uh, that I feel confident about. But what we're supposed to do with – because, you know, in other words, it's never, ever going to be happily ever after thing, right, in a fall from right. innocence to experience novel. So – that's true. That's true. Um, well, I know we are getting uh, running short on time. So let me ask you real quick uh, if you have another uh, theme or uh, topic of discussion that you think would be good to to use for future discussions or that you would love to see flushed out um, with regard to Rebecca. So just like a one sentence, I would love to hear more about what. Well, we never talked about her name. <laughs> or lack thereof. Well, we did right. a little bit, yes. but not much. Yeah, we referenced it, but um, which, you know, I was so fascinated by, you know, like, because at some point I, it just dawned on me, like, I don't know her her name, you know, <laughs> and like, it was really troubling to me. Um, and like that kind of erasure of her identity compared to Rebecca's. Um, but have you guys looked into why she did that? I read something uh, that DeMaurier wrote, which I always sort of think with authors, there's what they think and what they tell you, and those are not necessarily right, the same. Right. Mm-hmm. And the only comment I saw was she was like, I couldn't think of one. Right. Which is so <laughs> not true. It's so not true. <laughs> well, and then she said it became, she couldn't think of one, and then it became an exercise in technique or something. Right. Could she, write, yeah. Could she write a novel and keep the name, like without having the name, like would it work? And it does, like you don't. Unless someone tells you, I feel like you don't necessarily notice it. Um, but that's but part it of the not issue. Well, with her character mm-hmm. and her and her self-effacement, you mm-hmm. know. So I just think, you know, it, it's just interesting that that's how she explained it. Yeah, well, it's interesting, but it's also a total lie, and writers do this all the yeah. time. Robert Frost, like, oh yeah, I was just walking in the woods and I saw these two paths, and yeah, whatever. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, you know, but 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 to me it's just a totally brilliant move because you're the whole time it really aware, is. you know, that that Rebecca is everything. Uh, that the story yes. of Rebecca has created this whole and her entire even though she you know sort of worships Maxim, her world revolves around Rebecca um, until yeah. that explodes. And her name itself, you know, the physical appearance of her name, everything mm-hmm. about her name is just everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And and the fact is that the new Maxim de Winter, I mean, she has she has been a substitute, right? And her all of her problems from Mrs. Danvers, who is my vote for what we need to talk about next. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, just that's why she hates her so much, because she's not a substitute, right, for for the original Rebecca. And so it's 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 to emphasize the fact that she is a place she's taking the place of right she's slotted in that she doesn't have her her own identity like she's living for maxim at this point exactly for her name her name the only name she has is mrs maxim de winter Mm -hmm. right is so fitting Mm -hmm. yeah it is her identity yeah Mm -hmm. it is her identity and that's why this is such an interesting novel from a feminist perspective right because she's you know absolutely um writing this romance that nonetheless makes us very cognizant of the fact that this 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 girl has no other no other reason no other other name no other name this issue of naming and you know the the novel's called rebecca and like my husband i laughed out loud when i read the author's explanation oh me too me too and you know and i was trying to explain it to my husband he was like wait this book isn't about rebecca and i was like no it's (laughs) but it is but no it's not (laughs) it's about this other woman whose name we don't know and he's like what and i was like exactly it's brilliant yeah and you know my husband calls the narrator rebecca too oh no okay yeah i need to i need to have a sit down with your husband alexis because this is just wrong i know (laughs) 
<laughs> this is just wrong. It's like Rebecca and Rebecca too. I was oh, like, no, gosh, no, she's no. the narrator. No, and and I think that the films. Okay, I don't remember the Hitchcock film, but I'm pretty sure it didn't do this. But they've done a good justice by not ever trying to depict Re- Rebecca, right? The um the 1997 showed her mouth, her eyes, and one shot from the distance. Okay. But the other two have not, and I haven't got that far in the 79. Okay. But yeah, they don't usually depict her. Uh, the 1940 uses the letter R all the time. Like, it's yes. everywhere. That's yeah. what they use as the stand-in for the visual constant reminder of, mm-hmm. um, of Rebecca. It's embroidered on everything. Because that, to me, is a very strong thing about the novel in general, like the, the sort of absence yet present, right? The present absence of Rebecca, uh, the ghost, whatever you want to call it. And that's what makes it a gothic thriller, right? Is that right. You, she is there, but not there. Um, and that's why Hitchcock, of course, was completely drawn to this script, because that's his, that is his way of, of going. You know, that's, his, that's how he does and so, and Mrs. Danvers will be like that too. It's like all of a sudden she's right up on you, you know. It's like, oh, right. you know, with her skull-like, skull-like face. face. And yeah. I'm telling you, there is no way to get that in a in an actress the way that you get it in the book. I mean, right? Oh man. Yeah. Although I will say Judith Anderson is is oh, amazing. amazing. She does an, an amazing job. Look, that's um, what I remembered from seeing the film. Like I, I had a, a vague recollection of the sort of sea scenes with the, the, you know, with Ben, and her. That's what I remembered. Um, well, I would say the the only one I would add to that that was a possible topic discussion is sort of like what I alluded to is the role of nature in the. Um, in mm. the story, um, the narrator is so intimately familiar with like all of the natural history of like what the different flowers are and like they know all the names and maybe that was very common then, but Maxim does too. Everybody they they are all very like this particular flower blooms here and he knows where all the flowers are. Um, and then her positive memories of particularly the outdoor spaces and then the contrast between like cultivated maybe and wild. You've got these blood red azaleas um, mm-hmm. along the front, the front entrance that are like kind of creepy mm-hmm. and like overwhelming and intimidating, which I, I always feel like, well, that's that's supposed to be Rebecca. But then the happy valley that they visit that seems like it would be a natural fit for like the narrator, uh, gentler beauty and all of that. But we find out that. Rebecca put that there too. Yeah. <laughs> so like the, the different kinds of beauty and natural beauty, cultivation versus wildness, all of this stuff that's going on, I would love to see a discussion of how that all fits into uh, into the other themes. Um, well, with that, we should probably be moving towards passing on. So, uh, Kim, do you have any recommendations for us? Sure. Um not hugely related, but uh, Prayers in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep by Tish Harrison Warren. She's, uh, a, I think, an Anglican priest. And she, she is. wrote this actually, yeah, right at the beginning of, or right before the pandemic. Um, but I think it's very relevant for many of our experiences through it. Um, and uh, she's, it's a contemplation of the Compline prayer in the common book of prayer, um, particularly in regards to what I've connected with is in regards to grieving um, from some experiences that I had this past year. Um, So I just think uh, I think it's worth checking out if um, you want a, a good contemplation of grief. Yeah, I've got that on my list to I, I, I've really enjoyed the other stuff by Warren that I've read and I've got that on my list. I'm just a little bit intimidated by it, but um, but it's on my list to read. What about you, Christina? Yes, well, I definitely want to recommend Patricia Highsmith. I've just gotten into reading all of the Ripley novels. And the reason why I thought of her is because she is just, first of all, kind of a more popular side like you know, Daphne du Maurier is considered a more popular side of the literary world, whatever. So is Patricia Highsmith. And then when you start reading these novels, you're like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing writing. And the way that she draws up this uh, really criminal character, Tom Ripley, is just a sight to behold. Um, And such 
interesting reading. So, uh, and that's one thing we, we could have talked about with regard to Rebecca is just the, the master of suspense uh, that uh, De Maurier is in this novel uh, is just is, is amazing. And so I would I would recommend uh, Patricia Highsmith for the same reason. You're not wrong. I definitely had been doing a good job not biting my nails and then definitely bit several of them off <laughs> while I was reading this book, despite the fact that I've read it like a half a dozen times. Which tells so. you everything you need to know, right? <laughs> yeah, a literal nail biter. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, well, my recommendation, uh, well, first of all, I have to say, I've been thinking this whole time we've been talking, um, if for some reason any of our readers haven't heard the song Jolene, <laughs> you should go listen to it because I feel like it has a lot in common with what we've been talking about here. And if you have heard it, you should go listen to it anyway because it's a great song. So uh, Dolly Parton's Jolene talks some about these same kinds of themes of jealousy um, and idealizing um, the object of that jealousy. Um, but my my for real recommendation is the uh, the sitcom Community um, that um, was on NBC and then on Yahoo um, that uh, is an ensemble cast at a community college. And what I thought up with it is part of the story there is there is a very young character who starts the series. She's like 18, fresh out of high school and an older character who is going back to school. Um, who's supposed to be about, I think, like 15 years older than she is. And throughout the course of the series, they have a lot of chemistry. Um, and I I just think that they did an, an interesting, a contrasting job to how some of the adaptations of Rebecca have done, because the young woman is not treated as a child, um, and she is treated as a sexually mature adult. But the show also acknowledges that there might be reasons why it's not great for her to be in a relationship with a guy who's 15 years older than she is at 20. Um, uh, not because she is a child, but because their life experiences are so different. And I, I thought they actually did a really interesting job of handling it, given how much chemistry the actors had and how much pull there must have been towards pairing them up. But also saying, yeah, but they're supposed to be 15 years different. And is it really healthy for them? Uh, to go in this direction. So I just thought it was interesting in contrast to um, the way you see the narrator and Maxim's relationship, given what is like a 20 year difference between them um, and just a different way of handling, uh, handling that kind of dynamic. Um, we'll also include in our show notes links to related episodes, uh, specifically uh, the Jane Eyre episode that we did, because that does tie in to a lot of our conversation. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Kim Feldman and Christina Bieber-Lake, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in in two weeks for an interview with Mary DeMuth on her book, Misunderstood Woman of the Bible. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.